Okay. Uh, we have been talking about discipling for uh, two or three weeks. And uh, we've talked about what it is. We've talked about what it looks like, how it kind of uh, plays out in our lives. And so uh, before we get into tonight's session, how about um, we stop and think for a moment. If you have any questions thus far, anything that... You know, any ground that we need to replow, anything we need to talk about, any anything you don't understand or you're confused by. Yes, no, maybe, not ever. Okay, don't say I didn't ask. So tonight we're going to think and talk about uh, some barriers and excuses that uh, prohibit or hinder. Uh, our engagement in discipling others, taking this up as uh, a part of our own discipleship, our own following of Christ. So let me ask you, what are some reasons that a person might give for not engaging in discipling? You don't, you can say this is, you can speak for a friend so that you don't take any ownership of it if you want. This is not a time where we're going to uh, beat you up, but what what are some reasons that people would use for not discipling? Kyle, you can probably start. You're into discipleship and discipling, so what are some reasons you've heard people give you some of those lame excuses or reasons why they don't want to do this or can't do it? Got one? Not equipped? Not equipped. Sorry, Kyle, he just jumped in there. <laughs> that's all right. And you, he like probably got the one you were going to use, right? I like jumping in. That's good. They range from anything from, from I don't feel equipped to I just don't feel like I'm good enough to I, I'm just not ready and, 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 and I don't mean this to be negatively critical but usually if you get to the root causes of those it usually has to do with inconvenience fear uh, you know having, having to, to just change your way of life to incorporate Evangelism. They all start with the I, too. They don't start with God. I'm not equipped. I'm not ready. I'm not good enough. They all focus on self. Hmm. And, and all of us have been guilty of that at some point. Yep. Not wanting to talk about other people's sin. Let's see. Um, I'm going to put accountability. Um, and this would involve for sin or other sin. That's a, that's a, that's a great one. Yeah, if you've got some, some sin that you're avoiding dealing with, then you'll good chance you might avoid evangelism too. Yeah, and, and to kind of get back to um, a lot of times what happens there is I don't want to disciple you because I don't want to, to get into your sin because probably it's going to be too close to home with me. The things that you may be dealing with 
I can't speak to it because I got my own and I don't want to bring those up. Does that, that make sense? Or is that, did that muddy the waters? And it's so Everybody's right. You know, everybody's okay. Um, truth. What is truth? That's another Bible study. Uh, cultural. Uh, yeah, the, the culture says no sin. We we don't have any sin. That's being harsh. That's being unreasonable. Right? Denial. There's the word, denial. We, we want to deny these things. Any others? Reasons, excuses, barriers for that keep us from jumping out there to disciple other people. Or not like to read around other people. <laughs> Introversion. Not a people person. Lord is not doing something exciting enough in my life where I want to share it with somebody else. Jerry, that the word fear is to me has two parts to it. One is fear that I will not be successful in discipling the person, or the other fear is that they're at home just trounce me or beat up on me. Fear, rejection, or harsh responses, and what you're talking about, perfectionism, this is a huge thing in our culture today. If I can't do it perfectly, then you know our expectations set us up for falling under this one. Well, I might not be able to do it perfect, you know, I don't know all these things, which a lot of these are hooked to. Not equipped, not ready, not good enough, you know, so my own perfectionism is a, is, gives me an out, right? Good. I don't have We've pretty time. much done the class. I don't have time. <laughs> that was the last one, Bob. We've done it. No need to keep talking. Don't have time. And it's not my job. It's what? It's not my job. It's not your job? Right. That's for the I don't think you can say that. The <laughs> if God's going to save them, then he'll do it. In all honesty, there's maybe one thing missing here. It's, I mean, I don't know much about different religions overall, but it's there's a lack of a standard. It used to be that the Bible was a standard, and even if you weren't a believer, you believed that the Bible was God's word. Unfortunately, now there's so many different religions, so many different perspectives, so many different ways that there's no one way, and nobody really looks at it. You say Bible, God, religion, salvation to anybody today, and they say, that's all right, I've already got my own way. Pluralism, universalism, relativism. Yeah. Um, 
what right do you have to tell me that? So, because of that, we're reluctant to get involved. We're reluctant to put ourselves out there. We're reluctant because we know they're going to look at us and go, who made you boss? Who made you the authority? Who says you can say this to me? Now, there is a caveat here. We're talking, we, we've been talking in context really about, you know, people that we have relationships with, and so some of these maybe aren't as, as huge as, as they might be if you're out, you know, thinking about walking up and meeting somebody at first blush, which no reason why we shouldn't include them. But, <clears throat> so good. This is great. Uh, you know, we could unpack a lot of these and we could chase a lot of rabbits here tonight, but I'm going to focus on five specific things that come up. And um, they fall into three categories, three overarching categories. There's uh, a theological category. There's the matter of complacency as a category. And then there's the feelings of inadequacy, the perfectionism. And the first two we're going to talk about fit into the theological side. The middle one we'll talk about complacency, and then the last two will fit into the inadequacy aspect. So let's think about excuse number one. Excuse number one that, um, you know, if we were doing, uh, what is it, uh, family feud? Number one answer. <laughs> excuse number one, I don't want to be in a position of authority. Uh, and we've touched on this, sort of. You know, it's there. It's just not spelled out exactly. I don't want to be in a position of authority. And this goes to what, what Kelly said, what Tim said, what's come up a couple of times here. Um, we know someone, we, we know the culture we live in is anti-authority in a big way, isn't it? We're moving more toward uh, independent everything. You know, everyone's an expert on everything now because the Internet makes you so, right? You don't, I mean, we have people that aren't going to serve as coaches or teachers or pastors or any position where you're supposedly in leadership with other people because of the frustration is that people don't want leadership. Everybody talks about it, but nobody wants it. You know, they want it as long as you're going in the same direction. You know, but this anti-authoritarian culture that we live in causes us to uh, push back against that kind of leadership. And so when you put yourself out there in a discipling role, you're kind of in a position where you're taking the lead. You're taking, you know, responsibility for something and you're uh, seeking to speak into someone's life from the Word of God, which is authoritative. And so we expect that people aren't going to respond well to that. They aren't going to receive that well. So the question then is, are you comfortable being in an authoritative position? Anyone in here that just says, hey, I don't mind taking taking the heat. Kyle, you don't, take, you don't mind taking the heat, do you? Of 
but it's still viewed in an authoritative lens. Yes. Um, you know, and you can go through Scripture and see it over and over and over again. You know, we see it with Moses and the children of Israel, right? They, they whined and cried, wanting God to liberate them from Egypt. And when Moses was sent to be the great liberator, emancipator, and then they spent the next 40 years griping and complaining about Moses, didn't they? Wished we'd have stayed in Egypt. They, at least they had good food there. We're out here in the desert. Um, same thing. You go through all the you go through the scriptures. You find it with with David as king, or with Paul in the New Testament, constantly having to deal with people pushing back against uh, speaking that way. It, it's it's just part of it. And and when you're in a discipleship role, you are speaking into people's lives firmly, if not authoritatively. I, I would. Uh, I would quibble a little bit there and say, I think any time that you're ministering the Word of God, it's going to come across authoritative. That's the nature. God says, I have a right to speak into your life. I have a right to determine what the parameters are of how you live your life. And so this is discipling. This is discipleship. Is that Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he what? He obeys my commands. That's pretty authoritative, isn't it? That's discipleship. So... It's, a, it's something we push back against. Um, how does the world describe authority? We've talked on that. They see it in a very negative light. And how do you view and understand authority? Probably, you would probably say, all of you are regular church people, you're Christian people, so you probably have, you understand, look, authority's good in these areas. So, you know, I'm going to come on Sunday morning. I expect the pastor to stand up and preach the Word of God. I expect him to do that authoritatively, okay, to speak into our lives. That's what he's supposed to do. That's what the Word of God does. That's fine. If you go out of here and you encounter authority in some other place in your life, you may push back against it, mightn't you? You know, Steve, you see some of that in the military, don't you, guys? They don't like that heavy-handed authority coming down, right? <laughs> We see it being played out in our culture where it comes to law enforcement or the laws of the land. And everybody thinks their circumstance is different. My circumstance is different and doesn't require the full authority of the law to bear on here. Or I see it differently. So everybody's pushing back against it. How did Jesus demonstrate authority? Okay. Only did his father's will. Let's look in Mark chapter 1. I mean, Jesus models authority for us, doesn't he? So, how did he do that? What would, how would you describe his pattern of modeling authority? Demonstrating authority. Look, let's look in verse 22. I hate to start in the middle of a paragraph. Why don't we start with 21? Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they, the audience, the people, were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had what? Authority. And not as the scribes. 
interesting in it because the scribes, the Pharisees, probably considered themselves to be people in positions of authority, right? And yet the audience, the people who were used to hearing them, recognized that they didn't really speak authoritatively. They didn't teach authoritatively. There was something missing in what they were doing. Yet Jesus, when he comes in, he goes to the synagogue, he's teaching, and the people were astonished at what he was saying because he spoke as one who had authority. John chapter 13. John chapter 13. What's going on here? John chapter 13, verse 12. Jesus is gathered with his disciples, upper room, preparing them for his departure. What does he do that night? He, he takes off his clothing. He puts on the clothing of a servant, a common house slave, wrapping a towel or some humble garment around him. I mean, as if he were a slave. And he goes about the process of washing their feet, which was a lowly, menial task assigned to some slave in the house. When someone came out, because they all walked barefooted or they all had sandals, so they walked dusty roads. When they came into a house, hot, sweaty, tired, dirty feet, the thing that the host always did was provide water, towel, some, some way of washing the feet and welcoming them into the house. And so... The disciples gather together in this room for the Lord's Supper. And what does Jesus do? First thing out of the gate, he dons the wardrobe of a servant and he begins to wash their feet. You know, remember Peter pushed back on that. You're not washing my feet. This is a big no-no. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. So he's teaching them about his level of authority. What, what's he showing them? What's he pattering, uh, patterning for them? Right, service, humility. This is what we see with Jesus almost every time, isn't it? We see a few instances along the way when he went in and cleansed the temple maybe where you know, he took the bull by the horns in a way that we would stand up and applaud and say, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. But most often, his, his demonstration, his example to us of, of authority is humility and service. It's an upside-down version of what we know today, right? He shows us how to be humble, how to be a loving servant. J. Oswald Sanders, in his book, Spiritual Leadership, says the following. And I know that uh, you, know, you can read lots of books about leadership in our culture today. They've been done and done and done and done to death. And most of them are not done well. Uh, and most of them have a, have a bad understanding or a false understanding of what real leadership is. J. Oswald Sanders' book, Spiritual Leadership, is a classic. If you ever get a chance to read it, you should read it. Order a copy and read it. He says this, the ma he calls it the master's master principle. In light of the tremendous stress laid upon the leadership role in both secular and religious worlds, it is surprising to discover that in the King James Version of the Bible, for example, the term leader occurs only six times. And yet, it'll be in most pastor job descriptions <laughs> six times 
three times in the singular, three in the plural. That is not to say that the theme is not prominent in the Bible, but it is usually referred to in different terms, the most prominent being servant. It's not Moses my leader, but Moses my servant. The emphasis is consonant or in agreement with Christ's teaching on the subject. Somebody look up Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28 for us. When we're thinking about discipling someone and following Jesus' pattern of doing that, we need to, we need to take on the attitude of seeing their welfare as being ahead of our own. That's what Jesus demonstrated in, in all his dealings with us. Matthew 20, 25 through 28. Who's got that for me? Carol? Carol? What does it mean to lord over somebody? Boss them around. Boss them around. Enjoy it, right? Kind of flaunt it. You know? Let them know that you, you're over them. That's not, that's not what Christ has patterned for us. And it's certainly not our calling or our place of responsibility as His disciples as we disciple others. We are not lording it over others when we disciple them. We're serving them. And that's the way we have to view discipling others is that we're serving them. This is, this is a God thing. This is God's desire for them. If they truly are in, in the family, if they're truly God's people, then this would be akin to having a child and deciding whether you're going to feed the child, clothe the child, take care of the child, or you're going to just leave them on their own. You know, now you can demonstrate authority and you should with that child and you say, hey, you come, you come in at this time and go get cleaned up, get your bath and come to the table. We're going to eat dinner. And the child may say, hey, you're, you're cramping my style. You're, you're lording over me. You're t bossing me around all the time. But what are you doing when you're doing those things? You're not bossing the child. You're caring for the child, aren't you? <clears throat> I mean, I, I know it can be a abusive in certain circumstances but that's not what we're talking about we're talking about doing the things for that child that the child needs to survive and to prosper and the same thing's true in the in the household of faith we have this responsibility as followers of christ to help each other thrive as followers of christ biblical authority is not abusive authority it is servant authority there's several questions you can ask to kind of gauge what your motives are and how you're going about this. Am I displaying the servant-hearted love of Christ in my use of authority? Am I using it for my own glory? Am I leading them to God's Word or to me? And that is a great um, check and balance for us to ask these kinds of questions of ourselves. Excuse number two. Intentional discipling relationships turn friends into objects. 
Now, what's what does that what does that mean? Making somebody your project. Great word, project. Seeing it that way. Now, you would never come out and say it, but if you treat them that way, okay, you can do that when you're sharing the gospel with someone. I've been there and done that years ago, thinking, hey, it's my responsibility. I'm supposed to be out there. You know, somebody convinced me that I have a responsibility to share the gospel with people and bring them to Christ. And so I can go out there and treat them as a notch in my evangelism belt. You know? I got to persuade them. I got to convince them. I got to make them come believe into Christ so I can put, put that on my, put that notch in my belt. And we can do the same thing when we're trying to disciple people. So we lose sight of the purpose behind this. Is the purpose to pat myself on the back, to gain some kind of accolade, you know, hey, I'm, I'm storing up treasures in heaven by doing this. Or am I, seeing, am I seeing them as God would see them and wants to grow them and develop them in the faith? Intentional discipling relationships turn friends into objects. Let me ask you, what is real biblical love and friendship? How would you describe real biblical love and friendship? Real biblical love and friendship. Selfless. Selfless. Serving. Serving. Sacrificial. Yeah, I mean, John 15 is a great place to find uh, some appropriate descriptions, right, for this. John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love, verse 13, has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So what's he saying? Jesus says here, real love is when we love others as he loves us. We can't look at Jesus' love for us as mere affection and camaraderie. It's bigger than that, isn't it? He determined to do eternal good for others as indicating his true love. I mean, he came and he came and endured life in flesh as an infinite God, confining himself to to a body of flesh and limiting his use of his attributes to only as the Father commanded him. I mean, the humility of what Christ did for us in order to redeem us, not to mention the atoning work that he went through when he suffered and died for us. Right? All these things are pointing toward uh, a love that's, that's breathtaking. And he determined to do this good for us as indicating his true love. John 15, 15, Jesus' friendship was shown by revealing his Father's will, he says. By teaching us what the Father wants us to know. How the Father wants us to think of him. So his disciples were not merely a project, were they? This was, this was vibrant. This, this is sacrificial. This is huge. He loved them by revealing God's truth to them. Uh, Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. 
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So his desire to do good for all his children is a mark, is a powerful mark of his love. It's, it's a demonstration. And we too are to live a life of love for others. So how do you swerve into making it a program or a project? You can start out with good intentions. You can start out thinking, well, that's, that would be wrong. But what, what happens to cause us to end up there? You mentioned it earlier. You said the word fix. We, we in our culture, we we often don't have good wisdom when it comes to what we're responsible to doing and what we're not responsible for. And oftentimes we try to fix people because we know what's wrong with them. Yeah. If they only listen to me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a father of three daughters and a husband of one wife. I can tell this because she left. <laughs> but it, it took me a long time to recognize the greatest flaw in us men is that we're fixers. You know, we're fixers. So when my daughters came to me with a problem, my first instinct, they had started down the road as, you know, two minutes into the conversation, I know where this is headed, right? I know I've already diagnosed the problem. Okay, stop. Listen to me. I'm going to tell you how to fix this. Boom, 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 boom. It took me years, and sometimes I still have relapses where I forget, Charles. They never wanted me to fix it. They wanted me to listen. They wanted me to listen. I learned it in counseling sessions. I've learned it as a parent. They don't want you to fix it. They just want you to listen. They want you to, you know, kind of commiserate a little bit. And then they'll let you know if there's something in particular they need you to do. But mostly they want you to listen first. They want to, they want to know that you're in the problem with them rather than just dictating an answer or a solution, Right? Same thing's true when we come to trying to disciple someone. How do you view that? My job is to get you from point A to point B to point C to point D. And somewhere down the road, I'm going to get you into black belt discipleship. You know, and everybody's going to be proud. And then I can go back and pick up the next one and, you know, work them through the process too, through their paces. And this becomes our mindset and it becomes a project, you know, task-oriented project rather than looking at it as a relationship that you're nurturing and developing and growing together, a friendship, right? Which is what we should be looking at it as. If I, if I need you to do well as a disciple, that means what I'm interested in is what people think of me, oh. not your best interest. If y'all want to argue with him, go after it. If you want to ask him, go after it, Bob. Y'all, uh, have y'all been studying ahead? I mean, this is this is good stuff tonight. You came prepared, or is this just so close to home that it's, it's a confessional? A confession. Oh, that's good. So, 
we must be one of the primary ways that we can avoid falling into these traps of trying to fix them, of making them a project, is to be faithful to God and His Word. There will be times when others do not feel loved by focusing on their soul. In other words, there will be times when you have to say things, speak into their lives in ways that they don't want to hear. Right? Those things do happen. Tough love, yeah. But we got we got to go with that gently, don't we? Tenderly. Honestly. Because we've all been in that same situation, you know. Sometimes they don't believe caring for their own soul is what's most important. Okay, third excuse. I don't feel like it, and I don't have the time for it. Did we have I don't feel like it on here? No, we wouldn't be that audacious, would we? We were, we were much more. But we, we did have too busy and too much time. Huh? Inconvenience? Okay, I'll give you that one. I don't have time. And basically, I don't really care. I got enough stuff to worry about without having to worry about you. I got five kids from 3 to 12. And you want me to take on somebody to disciple? Somebody like Kyle? <laughs> I mean, go have a conversation with his mom and dad. <laughs> we live, we all live busy lives, and that, that's becoming, and now we've, guess, guess what? We've got the pandemic as an excuse now. Well, we have to socially distance, you know. I can't, I can't do this with a mask on, and, you know, we just, we can't do it. So when this all lifts, boy, I'm going to get after it. We deal with vast amounts of distractions and, and attractions. And so it's important to reset our focus on things that really matter. Think about how God has cared for you, loved you, forgiven you, blessed you. As we consider such things, it should encourage us to do the same for others, should it not? Well, we've been talking on Facebook. You've been talking on Facebook? That's a great place to disciple, right? Yeah, that's where most people lose their faith. That's why, yeah, don't get me started there. Uh, it's a great tool, but man, is it a bad tool? Life, now this is important, life is not full. Life is not full, life is not meaningful without Christ. You believe that? Okay. If you believe that, if we believe that, we say we believe that, then why would we not want that for these other people that we're trying to disciple or that we think need to be discipled? Life is not meaningful, not full, not what it's supposed to be without Christ. If 
we really believe that, then we have a responsibility, don't we, to help them find or have that full life in Christ. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. He says it to us, but he says it to others as well. If our friends are not living life as God intends, they are not living full lives. Family, friends, neighbors, no matter how much they think they are, right? They may convince themselves, talk themselves into it. Well, you know, I got all these things. I do this stuff. I do this. I, I, got, I got it all. I got it all. Truth of the matter is, somewhere down deep inside, they know they don't have it all. They're wondering if this is all there is, right? So to not encourage them, to not encourage them in this way is to be unloving. So our job is to encourage, to challenge them to live with Christ at the center of their lives. And this is really loving them. So what, what if your problem is time? What if you don't have the time? Pa Pastor, you just don't understand. I, you know, I got five kids. I got a job. I just moved. I'm unpacking boxes. I've got, you know, and believe it or not, they have to eat three times a day. Try that sometime, right? I remember uh, some of you know Dr. Gaston. Some of you don't. Maybe more of you don't than do. Uh, Dr. Joe Gaston's our resident veterinarian, or one of them. Richard Barnwell's the other one, I guess. But Dr. Gaston and his wife um, had a two-year-old son, and God blessed them with triplets. Triplet girls. Identical? <laughs> uh, they're pretty, they're, they, they look alike. I don't know if they're identical, but they look a lot alike. I can't tell them apart. I can tell... I could tell one of them apart from the others, but not all of them. Anyway, I mean, they're, they're what? They're 32, 3, the girls are, I guess, now. But the, the point is, the story he told me was when those girls were born. And he said, all I did was change diapers and feed babies. You know? I'd have one in each arm with a, Bible pro or with, a, with a bottle propped and have one laying across my legs with a bottle propped. And you get done, and you change their diapers, and then you start all over again. And that was life, right? Life is busy. Life is busy for lots of different reasons. But I think that if we see that discipling others or helping others, pointing others to Christ, pointing others to God's Word as being important, maybe more important than anything we're doing, right? Probably more important at least than some of the things we're doing, that we should examine our schedules with a critical eye. There may be some things we could dump that maybe aren't quite as important as someone's eternal well-being. So I'm not sure busy is necessary. You know, we've got more advantages on the time than any, any culture ever, right? Imagine Paul. Everywhere he went, he had to walk, right? Uh, on not so even roads and We've got computers and air conditioning and cars and all this stuff that's supposed to give us more time, and yet we've got less time, we say. Nothing kills time more than technology. That's just true. This is a true story. And I know we've gone to meddling now, so I'm going to move on. 
Oh, probably a number of things of lesser value in your schedule you can dump. Uh, I read somewhere that if something is worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. This goes back to the perfectionism. If something's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. This is not a statement about quality or laziness or anything like that. It's about the importance of the job. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing at least the best you can do it until you can get better at it. Right? No, that's not what I said. That's not what I said, Charles. Do something even if you even if you can't do it perfectly, do it. If it's important to do. Right. That's right. You don't have to be trained to start the side Eventually you need to be trained. All you need to do is find somebody who knows what to do. <laughs> and for me, that's really easy. <laughs> right? Is that what you're going to say next? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, you set that up so beautifully, I thought you were getting ready to tell us. Bob, stop that. <laughs> That's what Bob thought. No, I thought that applies to Kyle. <laughs> okay. All right. It's good to have Kyle in here. We've got to, we've got to, have, a, got to have a straight man. Evidently, it's good to have me here. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Bob. Thank you. Yes, yes, we love all of you. You guys, good sports. Excuse number four. I don't have anything that I can teach. Every Christian has at least one important thing to pass on to others. If you don't have, if you're not specialized, okay, let's say you don't know the inner workings of the doctrine of justification, so you can't train somebody in that. Where can you start? Start with the gospel. Listen, you, you can spend you can spend days hours, weeks, months talking about the gospel. In fact, I would say part of our problem is that we want to move on from the gospel too readily. There's plenty of the gospel to unpack. You know, the gospel not only is about salvation, the gospel is about sanctification. Did you tell Bob? <laughs> <laughs> So he can paint your house. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, in the course of that, not only would Everett learn how to paint, but I know that during the course of that, just it would naturally come out that Charles would manage to tell Everett whatever he knew about the Lord through painting. There you go. Many believe the gospel is what God uses to save people, and it is, but some. The same gospel that saves is the same gospel that sanctifies us daily. We underestimate this. The book of Titus, Paul says, it is important to remind believers about the gospel. Listen, Titus 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, 
led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. What's he doing? He's rehearsing the gospel with them, and he's encouraging them that these things need to be shared. Continue to share these things. You never know. Someone can sit in a church for years and years and years and still not know the gospel. They may have heard the gospel, they may be able to recite the gospel, but they may not know the gospel. I've seen it happen too many times. And you never know. Your conversation may be the day that God pulls the veil back and the coin drops and, you know, transformation occurs. But besides that, when we rehearse the gospel, we rehearse the gospel over and over, it, it continues to edify ourselves. You know, it reminds us what God has done for us, in us and through us, as well as with others. We should constantly remind ourselves and others of the gospel. <clears throat> you can read quality books with someone and just talk about them. You know, you don't have to, be, you don't have to go to seminary to be able to, to disciple someone or to engage in a discipling relationship with someone. You can read a good book if you want a list. I'll be glad to give you one. Kyle can give you one. Lots of people can give you some books that you can read. Not heavy-duty tomes, but, you know, just books with things that will point you to Christ. And you can sit down with a copy each and read a chapter a week and come together and discuss it. And, that, and you can help disciple somebody. And C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Yep. And they are so, you can't put them down. Right. It's so much, he made it so interesting and a way to. You could, you could probably sit down and I don't know, I, I don't, this is not the way I'm wired, so I don't do that, but you probably could sit down with someone and watch the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia, and use it as an opportunity to talk, talk through the gospel and disciple someone. Okay? There's lots of ways to do this. Your daily testimony. What are you praying about? What's going on in your life? What have you learned in the Bible lately? What did you, what did you hear Sunday in the sermon? What did you hear in your Sunday school class or your Bible study this week or even in this class tonight? You can start anywhere and start talking to someone about those things and ask them what they think about it. And it leads to a conversation, you know, and then, you know, one breadcrumb leads to another breadcrumb to another breadcrumb. This is the way discipling occurs. What do you think? I mean, Jesus, would you agree that Jesus discipled his disciples? Yeah. You think he did that? I think he did. Yeah. Do you think he was successful? Yeah. <laughs> now think carefully. Let's, let's remember. Get thee behind me, Satan. And that was toward the end, right, Peter? But, yeah, how do you think he did that? Do you think... 
he he had a whiteboard or had a, a flat screen TV that he could hook up his laptop to and say, all right, I want you to do these worksheets tonight before you turn in over there behind the rock. You think that you think that's what happened? No. No. How do you think it happened? What did he do day by day by day? He was looking at objects. He was looking at things. He was, he was pointing to a farmer and his crops, and he was talking about wheat and tares growing together and, you know, fish and, you know, go down and get a fish, give to Caesar what that which belongs to Caesar. Things that everyday life, and he was making spiritual connections with people over those things. And I imagine he's sitting down eating some fish with the disciples over a fire at night. And as they lay around, he's trying to talk to them about the gospel, why, why he is the fulfillment of the promise that they've heard about all their lives. He not only did it once, but again, over all the time. I, in fact, I would tell you that he probably fulfilled and walked in Deuteronomy 6, right? As you sit, as you stand, as you eat, as you're going about, put them on the doorposts of your gate, you know, put them on the, the, the lentil in the doorposts of your house and talk about these things constantly. That's what he was doing, right? All the time. This is discipling. Okay, excuse number five. I'm not gifted to disciple others. Let those who are gifted disciple others. Let Kyle do it. Kyle likes to do it. Kyle thinks it's important. Kyle should do it. All in favor? Yeah. It's going to fix all my mistakes up. <laughs> we said those weren't important. Oh, sorry. Remember? Did you zone out on me there for a minute? Uh-huh. I know where Everett gets it from. It's becoming more and more clear. This <laughs> I've met. I've been around his mother. I don't think that's true. I'm not gifted to disciple others. Let someone else do it. We all have different gifts that we can share with younger Christians. It's not just about theology or expertise in Bible exposition. You can teach someone about praying. You can talk to them about, uh, you know, their struggles. Listen to what what's going on and just be, you know, look, you don't have to solve. You don't have to fix it. You can listen to someone's struggles and say, can I pray with you about it? Can we pray with you? What are you doing there? You're not fixing anything, but you're pointing them. You're pointing them where they need to be looking. When you're thinking, I don't have the answers or I'm going to get it wrong, what are you doing? You're getting them to look at you, pointing them to you. And that's never going to end well, is it? We want to point them to God's Word. We want to point them to Christ. And so... You can pray with someone and you're pointing them to Christ. Then you can go home and you can do some study. You can do some digging in the Word and say, okay, these struggles, you know, where do I find, what does God say about these things? I can do that. And then go back and say, hey, I want to read some Scripture with you. I want to show you this. And then trust in the sufficiency of God's Word to do what God wants to do. You don't have to add to it. You don't have to help it. Trust it to do the work. Okay. You're the conduit. Remember that. You're the conduit. God's spirit and word will shape them through you if you allow it. All right. Overcoming fears of discipling. Remember when Jesus kind of rebuked the disciples for not letting the children come to him? 
He said, let them come. Let them come. This is, this is encouraging for us. Our job is not to get in the way and try to fend them off and protect Jesus from all these troubles and everything. That's not our job. Our job is to say, I want to bring you to the Master. I want to bring you to Christ and let Him fix it. Let Him do what He needs to do. We've studied about false teachers a lot lately, and we're going to continue to because it's a predominant theme throughout God's Word. And none of us want to be guilty of being false teachers. As Kyle said, we don't want to get things wrong. So we should approach it with care and diligence. What are some fears we might have uh, without a possible about a possible discipling, discipling relationship? Uh, we've, we've mentioned some of these. They're going to ask me questions I can't answer. What if that happens? What if they ask me something I can't answer? Admit it. Admit it. <laughs> Own it. Repeat the words, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. I'll see if I can find out the answer. Great answer. That's a good question, you know. I'm not sure I can give you the right answer right now. Could I, could I think on that for a few days and get back to you? Very rarely will someone look at you and say, no, I must have an answer now or I will die. I'm going to die in the next 10 minutes if you don't have the answer for me. It's not like an antidote to, you know, the coronavirus, is it? But they got time. they got something on their mind. Now, I used to run into this with people when you're in a, uh, an evangelistic situation. You're trying to share your faith. The number one question, Family Feud answered, what is the number one question to deflect the gospel presentation? Where did Cain get his wife? <laughs> Number one question of all time. But you see, Jesus died for your sin here. In the, and, 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 but preacher, can I ask you, where did Cain get his wife? Now, if you allow those things to frustrate you and get you off the scent, you're in trouble. But your answer is, you know what? That's a good question. Can we come back to that? Can I get back to you with that? Most of the time, they'll say, oh, yeah, sure, I just thought of it. No, you didn't just think of it. Who thought of it? Satan's whispering that in the ear, isn't he? Where did Cain get his wife? Who cares? You know? He married his sister. I mean, we all know that, right? He married one of his sisters. Okay. Uh, you may say something wrong. Kyle has more experience with this than anybody. And he's still alive to tell about it. You won't live out a perfect Christian life in front of them. You're too immature to help anyone. You might fail at this. You might not be liked by the other person. Oh, the horror. But they might not like you. At least not initially. But dying without Jesus is not profitable. And see, this is always the answer. This is always the answer to those doubts and those concerns. If they die without Jesus, if they die at cross purposes with Jesus, it's not good. 
So, can I endure a little discomfort, a little awkwardness here in order for the greater good, for this person's good? Or is it more important for me to feel liked? See, you, you got to be honest with yourself. What's the, what's the most important thing here? I know when we're thinking about self, we're going to think it's important for me to be like preacher. Let's don't let's don't kid around. We all like to be liked, don't we? I mean, I want to be liked by most people. There's a few I don't really care. I don't care if LeBron James likes me or not because I don't know him. But if, you know, I live next door to him, I probably want him to like me. You know? I don't care if who who does. Now, it's important to me that all of y'all like me. You do, don't you? <laughs> Make sure you sign the sheet on the way out the door. <laughs> I mean, we we don't want to be we don't want to be contentious people. We don't want to rub people the wrong way and we don't want them to dislike us, but we have to think about the bigger picture, you know? If if your child says, I hate you because you're not going to let them snort cocaine, you're going to be okay with that, aren't you? Well, you'll just have to not like me because I'm committed to your greater good here. And snorting cocaine is not the greater good. Protecting you from yourself is the greater good. All right, I know, we've got to wrap this up. Uh, so, what happens if you make a mistake? Well, you got to remember that we're not perfect. We do stumble, but face your mistakes. Own it. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no shame in that. And we have to be okay to say, you know what? I don't know the answer, but I'll find out the answer. Or, you know, last week I said something to you, and that was not correct. I was wrong, and I need to correct that now. Wow. Well, I appreciate that. Nobody died. Come back and admit it. Or if, you know, I need to come back and ask for forgiveness. Hey, I'm sorry. I blew this. I, I wasn't very nice in that situation. You know, I, I stumbled over myself. No one's perfect. Everyone understands that. So the, the problem we have, in fact, that's a great discipling opportunity, is it not? To show them how to face your mistakes in a healthy way. Okay, I want to give you three practical steps to take this week. First one, write out your own barriers and excuses for discipling. Write out your own barriers and excuses for discipling. Consider the unbiblical reasons. Excuse me. Notice I said unbiblical reasons that cause you to avoid discipling. Are there any biblical reasons no. for not discipling? Okay, good. Take that list and do what we did today in this class. See if the reasons are reasonable in light of Scripture. You'll probably find that most of your excuses can be thrown right out the window once the light of Scripture reflects on them. Number two, think about your schedule. Analyze, evaluate your schedule. Be honest with yourself. There's some room in there. You can make some room. There's some things that you can dump. And the world won't end. Example, reading the newspaper, probably not a good example in this day and age. <laughs> reading the news on my iPad or my phone 
I love to do that in the mornings with a cup of coffee. Well, maybe having breakfast with a friend once a week, one day a week out of the seven, you could do that instead and talk about spiritual things and you'd find yourself in a discipling relationship. Number three, take some of the teaching from this course seminar or from the morning sermon or a Bible study or a Sunday school class or a Christian book that you're reading and start to talk about it with a friend this week. Even if it's a short conversation, it counts. You get credit. Questions? Let me quick, I, I got to share this with you. Lauren Sani, uh, Sani, Sani, I don't know how he says his last name. He shares a story about discipling a man named Charlie Riggs. Okay? He says, before I met Charlie, he had worked for seven years as a roughneck in the oil fields of Pennsylvania. Social graces weren't particularly prominent in his life. He could hardly talk without stuttering. If you ask a personnel board to consider him as a trainer of counselors for, of all things, the Billy Graham Crusades, he would have not been on that list. When Charlie first came into my home, I was disappointed. I had a schedule, I had scheduled a Bible class for servicemen, and he was the only one who showed up. One man. In those days, I didn't realize the importance of helping just one fellow. I was forced into it. He would come to those meetings and sit without a smile, looking rough and tough, and we would have our Bible class, and then he would leave. But it wasn't long before Charlie came in one night and said, Lori, let me show you something God gave me out of the Scripture. I also remember the night when he said, Lori, I've been getting up to meet the Lord in the morning at 6, and then a quarter to 6, and then 5.30, but it still isn't enough time. I just feel I ought to get up and start my devotions at 5. Soon I found out he was reviewing two or 300 memory verses a day. Few people would have chosen Charlie for an important role in God's plan, but God did. Charlie trained several hundred thousand people in personal counseling all over the world through his work with the Billy Graham team. Lauren says, it's astounding what God has done with that fellow. And I would never have picked him out for it. In fact, I've quit picking out people for what God wants to do with them. But I'm having an ever-increasing vision of the possibilities of every individual as a channel of blessing through the transforming power of Christ. God can use anybody. I remind you that the disciples 